If you don't have a Bible today, please raise your hand. Our ushers will be happy to bring you one. We're going to camp out in Romans chapter 1. We are continuing our series, our next installment of Hot Button Issues, and today is the hottest of the buttons, so buckle up. (laughs) Years ago, um, my little boy, Tyler, is so cute. He was four years old, and uh, you know how it is, you teach your little kids Bible stories, and you want to know what they're learning. So I said to Tyler, I said, man, uh, what do you know about Jesus? And he said, well, he thought for a second. He said, he can see you, but you can't see him. And I thought, that's pretty good. He kind of understands the spirit realm there. And I said, well, tell me what else you know about Jesus, bro. And he said, well, he's got some good news, and he's got some bad news. <laughs> little theologian in training, training him right. And so in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wants to introduce us to what is called the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel, according to Paul, is great news. He's got some good news, but there's some bad news too. We're going to look first at the good news. Let's drill down and examine Paul's argument here at the beginning of Romans when it comes to the gospel. What is it? What do we mean by that? It's not just a religious word. Number one, on your outline, if you're following along, the gospel is the good news that Jesus came to announce salvation to the nations. He came to announce salvation to the nations. In chapter one, verses one through two, it tells us that the gospel is of God is a promise. The gospel of God is a promise. What does that mean? It's a promise that God made to Abraham in the Old Testament. In chapters 12, 15, and 17 of Genesis, it is a covenant that God made with Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation. He didn't promise that he would just make him one tiny nation that would be the favored nation of the earth. He promised to coalesce, to bring in all of the peoples of the earth into his family. So God gave us Abraham. He chose Abraham. And out of Abraham, he gave us a nation. And out of that nation, he gave us the Messiah, one man who now gives us a new nation made of every tribe and every tongue and every people group. All languages, all ethnicities across the globe are now the people of God. It was a promise, Paul says, that God started in Abraham and he carries it all the way through to Jesus. That's the first thing you need to know about the gospel. Second thing you need to know about the gospel and Chapter 1, verse 16, he says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all those who believe. The good news, the Holy Spirit empowers the gospel. And when we preach this good news that all nations can be saved. You see, in Jesus' day, the Jews believed that the good news was that God was going to save Israel. And he was going to judge everyone else. But the surprising truth, when Jesus came in the first century, he reintroduced them to all those passages they had thinned out in their Sunday morning reading or their Saturday morning reading at at synagogue. They had thinned out and screened out all those passages which referred to God reaching out to the Gentiles, the land of Naphtali and Zebulun. A light has shone, and that's the Messiah. He came to win everyone. That's the good news. And it's the power of God for salvation. 
The third thing we need to know about the gospel, this good news in verse 17, is that the gospel is a righteousness by faith. Paul says it's a righteousness by faith from first to last. What does he mean? Well, go back to Abraham. Paul is convinced that this righteousness started by faith. Abraham was made righteous by faith. Romans chapter 4, he fleshes that argument out. Galatians chapter 3. Paul is convinced that the original covenant promise made with Abraham is a faith. It's a belief covenant. When I was a little kid, uh, God sort of illustrated to me uh, <clears throat> this to me, the story of my past. When I was a little kid, we used to go over my dad's best friend's house. His name was Jim Harold. Mean old Jim Harold. That's what I called him. And Jim Harold was an ex-Marine. And he was missing some fingers. He's always like, hey, how you doing there, little Jeffrey? <laughs> and as the story turns out, that uh, Jim Harold, after a, an illustrious military career, became the, um, the guy who was in charge of training people how to pull uh, the pin on a grenade. And so it didn't work out. <laughs> he had an accident in one of his uh, sessions and blew his fingers off. So he was a weird dude. But what was worse about going over Jim Harold's house is that it was an old country he had a big piece of land. It was a muddy, basically a mud pit. I had this really nice house right in the middle of a mud pit, which I actually kind of liked. But we would drive up to the end of the driveway of my daddy's old blue four truck, and all the way down to Jim Harold's his front door was just this sort of path, and Jim Harold had his dogs chained between the driveway and the front door. And they were some mean old dogs. I think he fed them little kids and gunpowder. I think that's what <laughs> he fed the dogs. And so I would get out, I was six years old, and I would stand by daddy's truck, and as soon as I would get out of the truck, those demons in dog fur would explode out of their dog houses, and they would run all the way up to me, you know, like they were going to kill me and bite me and devour me, but they were on chains. So right as they got to me, the chains just jerked them back, and they were just all over the place trying to get to me. And I would, I would start screaming and crying. And I would lift my hand and say, Daddy, come get me. Daddy, come get me. And my dad would run around the truck and pick me up and throw me on his shoulders. And he would walk me all the way to Jim Harold's front door. And all the way there, the dogs, those demons, they would, the demon-possessed dogs, they would jump all over him. And they would growl and snip and snarl and try to get me. Not once was I ever concerned about my dad's safety. <laughs> That's the funny thing. But I also never doubted my dad's resolve or his competence. And that is biblical faith. Don't think of biblical faith as some weird mystical thing. Biblical faith is just this. When Paul says you are saved by grace through faith, it's very simply this. It is standing and saying, God, come save me. Save me from that which would surely devour and wreck my life and my eternity. And he does. And it's a confidence in his competence. That's what it is. Jesus did not come to offer us a new rule book. You write that one down. Jesus did not come to offer us another set of rules and rights and religious stuff to do, man. The faith that Paul is talking about is a living, dynamic faith. Just as we were worshiping here, uh, uh, Pastor Kurt mentioned about lifting hands. That's, people ask me, why do you raise your hands? That's why. Because that's how I see myself with my heavenly father. I just want him to pick me up. And I just encountered that in worship right there. The, just uh, the electricity of God's power, man. That's what the Christian faith is all about. It's about a living experience with God. So the first thing we need to know about the gospel 
It's very simply this. You enter an intimate relationship. In fact, both Jesus and Paul as rabbis use this forbidden word. It's the word ava. It's the Aramaic word. It comes into our language as Abba. No rabbi in the history of the Jewish world used the word Abba to refer to the Heavenly Father. In fact, they wouldn't even use his formal name, Yahweh. They would skip it. Just leave a blank. Jesus comes along, Paul comes, comes along and says, the spirit of Christ that is in you empowers you to cry out, Abba, come save me. That's the message of the gospel. It's good news. You don't have to go to hell. As Kurt talked about last week, you can be saved by simply crying out according to Romans 10. But as Tyler noted, there are some bad news too. The bad news part of the gospel is that God is actually storing up his wrath for the end of the world. That's number two on your outline. Well, right now, God has sort of postponed his program for judgment for the nations. He's postponed that. But it's still coming. And right now, we are in an age or a season where God is reaching out to the nations and summoning them to his lordship by his spirit through his holy people called the church. And this is great news, but, but the warning is judgment is coming. Certain judgment is coming. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 1, starting with verse 18. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness, all the godlessness and wickedness of people, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what we... What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that the people are without excuse. Underline that verse. You're without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. And their foolish hearts were dark, darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being or birds, animals, reptiles, stupid stuff. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts, to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they swapped it and worshiped and served the creator of things. Instead of him, they served, uh, created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations with unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul is clearly trying to show us the pattern of a society that collapses. And here it is. If you go back to verse 18, it starts with the suppression of the knowledge of God. It starts by denying that God exists. We have been in this what is called a modern era for the last 300 years, now we're in what, was, what is called the postmodern era. For 300 years, it's called the Enlightenment. It isn't so enlightened. Because what it told us is that there is only the natural world. It's a form of idolatry. And what they did is they denied and failed to give God the glory for creation. 
And so because we have suppressed this knowledge of God, we have taught our kids that they are biological accidents. And then we wonder and complain why they act like accidents. It's because that's what we've taught them ever since they were this high. That's why. So Paul says, in verses 18 through 20, he says, that's the first thing you do is a society that disavows God. Then what they do, verses 21 through 23, is they replace God. They replace him with stupid idols. Now, you and I don't go to a temple the way they did in the first century and bow down to a bust of Caesar and take the mark of, you know, the beast or something. We're not doing that. But what kind of idols exist in our culture? What do we worship? Stuff. We worship the, worship the unbridled pursuit of things, consumerism. We have all kinds of idols. I, every one of you could make a quick list of 10 right now if I asked you. And so what we do is we suppress the knowledge of God, then we replace God with these false idols. And then the next step here is promiscuity, the unbridled pursuit of hedonism, the self-pursuits. When we say there is no God, or my God is now, I replace the almighty transcendent creator of, of heaven and earth with this new thing in my life that I worship. And then the next step is we are given to what is called profligacy. I like big words. Go to thesaurus.com. You'll, you'll be able to listen to me. <laughs> the source is your friend. Profligacy. Licentiousness. That didn't help, did it? <laughs> my son says, Daddy, your explanations require explanations. It's, it's the pursuit of self-interest and sin. And he says, it starts with the sexual revolution. And we've been in that since what? Late 60s, 70s? And lastly, he says, it ends. Here's how it ends. It is the unfettered acceptance of unnatural relationships, homosexual relationships. Now, this is a touchy subject, and we're going to zoom in on this today. But I think this is exactly what we're seeing in American society Paul's example of a society that's gone off the deep end and unbridled acceptance of tolerance. In the name of tolerance, we have embraced every worldview. And as a result, we have no worldview. But Paul says right here in verses 26 and 27, homosexual relationships are unnatural. They are not the natural way. He says right here, according to Paul, homosexual relationship is a behavior that brings tremendous guilt and shame. And he also says it results in all kinds of complications, both physically, emotionally, and psychologically, spiritually. And when questioned on this issue, believers are really quick to go to this passage, aren't we? Especially you mean fundamentalists. Yeah, you're mean. Now I'm not saying there are probably none here, but uh, we like to go to Romans chapter 1 because we love to zoom in on that passage that talks about homosexuality. And we will take that passage and we will shout it into the darkness, won't we? We'll shout it at the dark. But that's not actually Paul's way. That's not actually what he's getting at here. Did you know that Jesus loves gay people? Did you know that? If that statement causes you to flinch or recoil, you need a biblical reality check. And I'm going to give it to you. I can't think of a time when the rhetoric has been more heated on both sides. Can you? Can you think of a time when there have been more gay characters presented to us on TV as normal? In fact, there is a show called The New Normal. It's not normal. 
There's a show called Modern Family. I like the old family. There's a show called uh, uh, <clears throat> Game of Thrones, Survivor, The Voice, Glee. We are constantly being barraged with messages that this lifestyle is normal. But Paul says it's not. And with rare exception, anchors on news programs uh, interview, dare I say it, the dumbest Christians. Uh, Kurt and I have said uh, over and over, listen, our, goal, our end game for you is not to be smart Christians. We want you to be passionate lovers of God. But we don't want you to be dumb Christians either. The world is not better served with dumb Christianity. And uh, just, just the other day, a few, uh, uh, not too long ago, I looked up this issue, and I saw this video by Anderson Cooper on Anderson Cooper's uh, 360, and he, he could hardly believe, he was interviewing this southern pastor, and he could hardly believe the stupidity that was coming out of this man's mouth. And I had to side with Anderson on this one, who is an out-of-the-closet homosexual himself. I had to side with Anderson on this one. I recoiled. I was repulsed by the dumbness. This guy wanted to gather up all the homosexuals, put them behind an electric fence, and let them die off. Oh, wow, what does that communicate to the world? Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy burdened. The cause of Christianity in the gospel is not better served with dumbness. And my message to you today is simply this, if you're a believer in the house. Any theology or denomination, denominational teaching, that teaches that gay people are a special class of sinner is way off. To be sure, Paul considered homosexuality a sin, but look at the rest of the list. Let's read it. And as we go through it, <clears throat> you underline the ones you were guilty of last week, okay? <laughs> Verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed. Let's stop right there. When is the last time you watched HGTV and you just wish you had that place right on the beach, right? I do that all the time. I was guilty of this last week. I was like, I want more. And depravity. They are full of envy. When is the last time you were jealous over your neighbor's stuff? Murder. Strife. When is the last time you started a fight or an argument? Deceit. When is the last time you told a white lie to get out of a ticket? And malice. They are gossips. Some of y'all ladies. Check. Talking over the back fence. <laughs> slanderers. God-haters. Let me go back to slanderers. Did any of you uh, post anything on your Facebook or your Twitter account about how stupid President Obama is? Or what an idiot he is? Well, if you did, you were guilty of slander. You're in this column right here. Bam. <laughs> God-haters. Insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. All of you teenagers in the house going to hell. <laughs> they are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Are you getting the picture? In Paul's view, all this stuff belongs in the same category because you know what all this stuff explains? You know what it describes? Us. It describes the human condition. Romans 1 through 3 describes something very simple. It's called original sin. We are all sinners. And the message of the gospel of Jesus is not to look out to the gay community or any other community and point our finger at them and shake and wag the truth in their face and say, you're a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. We're the righteous ones. That's what the Pharisees did. 
That is not the gospel of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is there is a cross. Jesus died on it. We are a fellowship of broken people. Why don't you come join us? Join the club, Jack, because you're in. You're not only a participant in the hair club, you're the president. I'm sorry, let me just go. That's the message of the gospel. It is join the fellowship of the broken because we're all broken and we all need salvation and grace. Having said that, I am rather annoyed at the unsophisticated and weak arguments that the homosexual activist community constantly barrages us with. And so I am going to walk through those really quickly, super quick. They're on your outline if you're following along because I just want to think out loud here. And then I'll come back to this message of the gospel. There are some objections that occur in our culture to our worldview, which is a Christian gospel worldview. So I'm going to address those really quickly. The first one is this. Objection number one, but I was born this way. I was born this way. I realize a lot is riding on this argument for my gay friends, but frankly, I think this is an irrelevant statement. It's irrelevant. Listen, I come from a long line of, of, of drunks. Did you know they have identified an alcoholism gene? It's called the Krebs gene. My grandfather died in his sleep. You know how he died? He was smoking a cigarette. He fell asleep. He was absolutely sloshed, drunk. He set the building on fire. The whole high-rise went up. He killed himself and several other individuals in that, in that high-rise. My father struggled with alcoholism. Beat me silly. My brother struggles with it. I don't drink. Now, I may have a predilection, a genetic predilection for alcoholism, but I don't know, and I'm not going to take the chance. Even if I did, I would choose another behavior. It has nothing to do with the way you were born. That's called genetic determinism. That's called I'm getting off, or I'm getting uh, out of the responsibility of taking responsibility. God has called us to take responsibility for our behavior. Moreover, some of the best research that I've found, and I've interviewed people who are biologists and uh, PhDs in chemistry. I've interviewed these people. Some of the best studies around, and we'll post them later on our website, under our issues page. You can go there when this sermon posts later. Genes do not produce behavior. They don't even determine behavior. The only they only influence the probability that you might be involved in that behavior given certain environmental triggers. Homosexuality is a matter of morality. Even if you were genetically predisposed to it, we still have to deal with whether or not the behavior itself is moral. And the scriptures say it is not. It's not. Objection number two. But aren't there lots of other ridiculous and outdated commands in Leviticus? Well, this is a big one. What are we talking about here? Leviticus 18, it says this. You shall not lie with a man as you would <clears throat> with a woman, for this is an abomination to God. Well, it's true, a lot of Christians quote that verse. Uh, but, there, but there again, Leviticus is irrelevant. Is Leviticus God's word? Sure. Who's Leviticus written to? Not written to you. It was written to a, a, a priestly cult and to give them directions of their tabernacle and temple cult worship. That's who it was written to. Leviticus is full of a lot of good ideas. It also says, do not murder. I think that's a good idea. So we don't want to throw Leviticus out. 
that we don't want to throw this out either. Why is it irrelevant? It's irrelevant because what matters at the end of the day is the entire counsel of God. That means the whole witness of Scripture. The prohibition for homosexual relationships predates Leviticus and it postdates it. When we go all the way back to the Genesis account, you will find that God said of the human race, male and female, he said you are selim and demuth, which means you are image and likeness of God. What does it mean to be the image and likeness of God? It defines it right there. Male and female, he created them. Together they were in the mutual image of God, which means the greatest expression of the image of God in creation is monogamous heterosexual relationships between a man and a woman. That is the greatest expression of the image of God in all creation. Jesus affirms this in Matthew 22. Jesus affirms it in Matthew 19. The the New Testament affirms this. Paul here in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Timothy 4, or 1, 9 through 10. Listen, God's last word on the matter is his most relevant one. You can write that down. God's last word on any matter is his most relevant one. And the Bible is like a novel. Some of the threads don't get pulled together to the end. It's called progressive revelation. You don't get the whole story in the first three chapters. You got to wait to the end of the book. And at the end of the book, it clearly says this is not appropriate for humanity. It's not. Let's take polygamy and incest. Is that still tolerated in Christian society today? Of course not. Is it in the Old Testament? You bet. I don't think that uh, we probably would have gotten out of the garden if it wasn't for some, uh, uh, some degree of interbreeding there. It would have just been Adam and Eve forever. Does God tolerate polygamy in the Old Testament? Sure. But at some point, Almighty God sees that this relationship is no longer good for the gene pool. And if you don't believe that, come home to me, to Virginia with me. <laughs> and I'll show you some weird-looking people in the neighboring state, West Virginia. We'll drive out there. But listen, at some point, God said, this relationship is not good for the gene pool. Done. So what is God's last word on the matter? Matthew 22. We go back to the garden. Monogamous heterosexual relationships with a man and a woman. That's his last word, and that's his most relevant one. So Leviticus is frankly irrelevant. What about objection number three? People who speak out against homosexuality, well, they're bigoted, haters, who are opponents of civil rights. Have you heard this one? Well, that's silly in the extreme. Nonsense. People who speak out about others' elective sexual practices are not bigots and haters. First of all, unlike matters of gender and race, there are no physically defining characteristics of a homosexual. The defining characteristic is the chosen behavior. In other words, how would I know that you are a homosexual or you are gay or lesbian unless you tell me you are? I can't look at you and tell that you are. There are no physically defining characteristics like there are with race or gender. It's not the same issue. A person can choose to be gay and a person can choose not to be gay. It happens all the time. In fact, some of the statistics I'll read, and you can read it on our website later, they're striking. Some of them estimate that around 60% of those who are in the gay and lesbian lifestyle are playing on both sides, on both teams. They swap. Sometimes they have heterosexual relationships. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they have gay relationships. Well, that should tell you right there. At least with that 60%, it's elective sexual behavior. That's not the same as saying I'm black or I'm white. Listen, I know former 
homosexuals. And I know former heterosexuals. But I don't know any former white people. <laughs> and I don't know any former black folks. Except for Michael Jackson. He's dead now, isn't he? Yeah. Sorry. Way out of line. And I can imagine why objection number three is so offensive to the African-American community. I grew up in a community in Richmond, Virginia that was mostly African-American. I was one of the only white dudes. And they called me cracker for a long time. I couldn't figure out what that meant. I figured it out later. And there's no people group in American history who have suffered more prejudice than they have, with the exception maybe of the American Indian, based on nothing else than the color of their skin. That's real prejudice. And making a judgment call about the morality of your sexual lifestyle is not the same, and your common sense ought to tell you that. I'm sorry. Sorry. Okay, objection number four. People who argue against homosexuality are homophobes. Well, Jesus wasn't. Jesus used a very broad term in the Jewish culture. It's called porneia, where we get the word pornography. And he forbid all forms of sexual deviance. And homosexuality is included underneath that umbrella term, porneia. Jesus forbade that. Why didn't Jesus explicitly speak out on it, though? Well, because in the Jewish culture, it was absolutely forbidden, unlike the Greco-Roman world. So Jesus did not really have an opportunity to specifically address that issue. But when Paul goes out and takes the gospel to the Romans, guess what? He's got to talk about this issue because it was rampant in their society. But Jesus wasn't a homophobe. Neither is Paul. Paul's message is not you're a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. Paul's message is come to the cross, come to faith. Objection number four is nothing more really than an emotional outburst that shuts down the conversation. Listen, if it turns out that you're wrong, being louder about being wrong, dialing up the volume on it, is not going to make you more right. Both sides have to realize that any worldview, any issue, any viewpoint or perspective has to stand on its own merits, on its own two feet, not based on its abuses or successes. So no, we're not homophobes. We love everyone. That's our command from Jesus himself. Objection number five, homosexuality is an admirable lifestyle alternative. Is it? This is a big one today. In fact, uh, I met with Dr. Don Calbreth last week, who was a tenured uh, biology and chemistry professor at Whitworth College, and he researches this issue at a scholarly level, and Dr. Calbreth said there's a lot of literature coming out of San, San Francisco right now where the homosexual community uh, is trying to take the genetic argument off the table because they realize that it's heuristically unfruitful. It's a blind alley. It's a dead-end pathway to say, to, to blame it on some phantom gene. It's, that's unfruitful. So what the big argument that they have right now is, well, it's an admirable lifestyle alternative, and, well, and as well, they should be arguing this right here. Because if it is not an admirable lifestyle alternative, we've got a problem. Is it? I think it is not. The evidence from the scientific and medical uh, uh, communities do not support this, the idea that it's a beneficial lifestyle. The International Journal of Epidemiology notes that while medic the medical consensus is that smoking, listen to this comparison they did, 
This is not a Christian group, by the way. Smoking knocks from two to 10 years off your life expectancy. That same journal of epidemiology noted that the homosexual conduct or homosexual practice shortens your lifespan by eight to 20 years. It's twice of what heavy smoking will do for you. The CDC, the Center for Disease Control in 2010, did a national STD prevention conference, and they found that the rate of, of <clears throat> new HIV diagnoses among men who have sex with men, called SM, MSM, is more than 44 times higher than heterosexual men. And I could read you list after list of the deleterious effects. There are, listen, there are horrific physical consequences associated with this lifestyle. It is not an admirable lifestyle alternative. I would challenge anyone who says so. The medical science doesn't, doesn't bear that out. And the activist community has marshaled an amazing effort to suppress this information. In fact, as a disorder, it's not even listed. You can ask uh, Pastor Brian this. It's not even listed in the latest DSM. The activist community would have us believe that this is the new normal, but Paul says it's not, and Jesus says it's not. If America is headed this way, I want to let you know, we are in for a collapse of morality. We are at the end of Paul's pathway, actually, because this is what we're seeing in American society. We are being told that we're not normal because we question the legitimacy of, of this uh, sort of uh, moral behavior. And I think as believers, we have better arguments. We do. I'm prepared to go toe-to-toe with anybody who wants to argue but I will not be argumentative. And God has not called us to have a fist fight with people who disagree with us. That's not what he's called us to do. Now, our arguments are better. We have better reasons. And just as Paul did in the book of Acts, he reasoned with them constantly from the scriptures. We have better reasons, but our call today is not to point our fingers into the darkness and judge them as sinners. That's not our call. Our call is to invite them to the cross, to join this fellowship of broken people, to join all you greedy people, those of us who have gossip problems and lying problems. Join us at the foot of the cross. Confess your sin. No, you're not an elite class of sinner, but you're not a special sinner either. Come because you're part of the club. And that's the message of the gospel today. That's our message. Let's pray. So our message, as the band comes forward, is very simply this. I want three responses. In your heart today, if you are struggling with sin, you are struggling in this area with temptation and thoughts, I want you right now to submit your heart to Jesus in your heart, not physically, but in your heart, reach out for him. Just like that little kid standing beside that truck reaching out for his father, his Abba Father, and ask him to forgive you, to cleanse you, and wash you clean of all unrighteousness. Come join the fellowship of broken souls. Be a part of it. Repent of your sin and ask him for forgiveness. Let him lift you by his grace. Secondly, second group, if you're a mean Christian, or you're a dumb Christian, you're forgiven. You're absolved of your stupidity. But I want you right now, if you've been mean on this issue, snarky, will you repent of it? Will you stop seeing people as a bunch of trash? 
bunch of sinners, not as good as you, will you confess that sin of self-rightness or self-righteousness in your heart and ask Jesus right now to forgive you of it and help you to see people through the lenses of the cross, Jesus' blood. The third group of people, those of you who get this, I'm gonna ask you to make a commitment right now in your heart to reach out to lost people. Do something radical. Reach out to a person who's hurting and who's struggling with grace and love and care and kindness because that's the gospel of Jesus, my friend. It's an invitation to total transformation and you're the catalyst. You're the key. Would you make that commitment right now? And Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves to this in Jesus' name. Amen. Close our time by making a couple before we worship and give. If you prayed today and you committed your life to Jesus for the first time, we have these new believer packets there on the back. Would you please pick one up? The second thing you need to do right after our final worship time is to come down and tell someone about it. Let us know that you prayed that prayer for the first time. And if you're here today and you're struggling or you have a family member and you want a support group, we have this amazing support group that's starting Monday night, tomorrow night. It's uh, called um, Grace to Reconciliation on Monday evenings. And it is a powerful group. I want to encourage you right back there at the Connect, Serve, Grow booth. You can pick up information for it. And you can come and be supported. And you can come and be heard. And you can come and pray and get some help, all right? Let's worship, and then I'll come back up. If you made a decision in your heart, or if you're struggling, I'm gonna be right down here in front. I cannot wait to talk to you. Come down here and let me pray the power of the Holy Spirit on you, okay? Or if you're struggling, or if you have a family member, you wanna pray for them. We prayed for some people in the last service. It was powerful, so come on down. Talk to one of our prayer people. And remember, that group starts tomorrow night. Brian? Yes, it starts tomorrow night. If you want to be a part of that, you can. Get some information in the back. God bless you. Have a great week.